We'll hear argument first this morning in case 06480, Legan Creative Leather Products versus PSKS Incorporated. Mr. Olson. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The per se illegality rule for resale price maintenance is widely recognized to be outdated, misguided, and anti-competitive. It should be replaced with the same rule of reason standard that applies to other forms of vertically imposed marketing restrictions. The Sherman Act bars only unreasonable restraints of trade, and the Court presumptively applies a rule of reason analysis to determine whether a restraint is unreasonable. Per se rules should be rare and imposed only where the Court is virtually certain, based upon considerable economic experience, that a practice is nearly invariably, invariably anti-competitive. Vertical minimum uh, retail uh, resale price maintenance are plainly not invariably anti-competitive. In fact, a broad consensus of economists and decisions of this Court recognize that vertical restraints promote interbrand competition, which is the goal of the antitrust laws, and are rarely, if ever, anti-competitive. There was a, an argument made, Mr. Olson, that it was, it's somewhat difficult to distinguish vertical from horizontal in this context, that, in fact, the agreement that the manufacturer made with the dealers was more successful in getting a horizontal accord among the dealers than if the dealers had attempted it themselves, in which case some might have held back. Well, the, the economists who have looked at the use of resale price maintenance have said that that would very rarely, if ever, be the case. It certainly could not be the case in this industry in connection with this participant in the marketplace. There are something like 5,000 dealers that the Brighton products are sold through. There are thousands and thousands of other competing dealers, hundreds of products. What, what the Court has said repeatedly is that programs such as this may promote interbrand competition. Mr. Olson, suppose just the dealers in New York, the retail dealers, agreed among themselves on the price. Would that be lawful? No, I think that that would be covered by a horizontal uh, prohibition, but Justice Would you say Stevens. that's per se unlawful? I think it would be uh, as a horizontal restraint among uh, comp- competing dealers. It could be a per se violation under horizontal rules. If it was, if it was involved the manufacturer in some way, it could be dealt with by the rule of reason. Why should that be any different from the, an arrangement where those dealers all got together in a convention and recommended to the manufacturer that he impose a vertical restraint of precisely the same dimensions? Why well, should you just What this Court said in Sylvania and said again in the State Oil versus Con is that the manufacturer has very, very little incentive to increase. No, but I'm asking, what, what if he did? Why should you draw a distinction? Because the motivation for the arrangement, if it comes from the manufacturer, you're suggesting a hypothetical in which all of the dealers in a particular area would get together to impose this on a manufacturer. I think it's very unrealistic that well, they that just would pass happen. a resolution asking the manufacturer to impose this vertical restraint. He, he agrees to do it. Should that be different from one in which the manufacturer does it independently? I'd, I think that if the manufacturer makes a decision, whether it's because dealers would like to see that happen or not, as this Court said in Business Electronics versus 
sharp electronics. There's, of course, relationships between the dealers and the manufacturers. The dealers may have an interest in doing this because they may find, for the same reason that the manufacturer does, that it promotes the sales of products. The record is clear in this case that this was an effective strategy for the Brighton company, the Brighton uh, Legion company that were manufacturing the Brighton products, to enter a very difficult and highly competitive marketplace, uh, and it was successful. Uh, the, uh, Mr. Olson, you could give us an example where the rule of reason would uh, find a violation uh, in this situation. Well, it might be a situation where well, the, the uh, economists who have written about this say that it would be very rare and would require retailers with a strong, powerful um, market power to impose a, um, a, 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 a situation on them where the manufacturer would do that to help facilitate a horizontal cartel. That certainly was not involved in this case, and that would probably be found to violate the rule of reason. In addition, it would probably be unlawful under the horizontal rules established by this Court. That was not an issue in this case. The economists say that that would very seldom happen. In I'm interested, you say, very which economists? I mean, I know the Chicago School tends to want rule of reason and so forth. But, I mean, Professor Scherer is an economist, isn't he? Worked at the FTC for quite a long time, pretty good expert in this field. He points out that the drug industry, after you got rid of uh, if after, after you got rid of resale price maintenance, the margins fell 40 percent. The drug stores, it went down 20 percent. He says uh, with blue jeans the, alone, it saved American consumers $200 million to get rid of it. And his conclusion is, as in the uniform enforcement of resale price maintenance, where the restraints can impose massive anti-consumer benefits, massive. Well, uh, what that sounds like is if at least he, who is an economist, thinks if you get rid of Dr. Miles, Every American will pay far more for the goods that they buy at retail. Now, that's one economist, of course. There are others who think differently. So how should we uh, decide this? Well, should we overturn Dr. Miles and run that risk? In, in the, the vast majority of the economists who have looked at this have come out to the opposite conclusion, Justice Breyer. Secondly — We're supposed to count economists? No, that how no. I think that — but th what this Court — what this Court has repeatedly said, that under circumstances such as this, where there is a consensus among leading respected economists, that is one factor. Well, I haven't There's seen another a consensus. Factor. A consensus? Isn't, isn't, doesn't Scherer and all these people, uh, don't, doesn't that point of view count, too? This is one factor that the Court should consider, and the Court has considered in the past when dealing with something that the Court itself has said is anachronistic, um, chronologically, schizoid rule to have a rule of reason for certain um, vertical restraints and a, a fixed rigid per se rule with respect to other vertical restraints. The, the, court, the court itself has made those pronouncements. The enforcing agencies have changed their view with respect, and, and they are here today, the Antitrust Division and the Federal Trade Commission, all of whom have announced that they believe that it is very rare for a rule such as this, for an arrangement such as this, to be anti-competitive. But it was not so long ago that the Department of Justice took a different view. And of all of the vertical restraints, this is the only one where Congress has been a player. I mean, Congress allowed the fair trade laws to operate, and then it withdrew that. There's no other restraint where there has been congressional action 
where the argument could be made, well, Congress is well aware of this. The Court should allow them to make a change if they so will. Essentially, the same argument was made in the Sylvania, at the time of the Sylvania case. The same argument was made uh, just um, a term or two ago in connection with the Illinois tool case that dealt with tying arrangements. The same argument was made in State Oil versus Kahn. This Court has construed the antitrust laws as an expression by Congress that the courts should be aware of the dynamic potential in the marketplace. But in those cases, you didn't have the counterpart to Miller, Tidings, and McGuire. The, that's, that's what makes this, this one different in terms of congressional attention. The repeal of those statutes, Justice Skins, were repealed per se legality rules. It was not a congressional expression against the rule no, of the But reason. there was in the patent case, though, Mr. Olson. We relied on the fact that the patent law changed. Yes, you did. Yeah. Um, and that was, a, that, was, that was one factor, however, Justice Stevens. I think, um, as I read that opinion, uh, the Court was also concerned with the fact that the, the per se rule, which — and the Court said the same thing just a few weeks ago in the Weyerhaeuser case, to the extent that there's practices that can be pro-competitive um, the court should not set a low threshold of illegality, especially a low per se illegality threshold. There was, there have been, it's worth emphasizing that the court has repeatedly said we don't want per se rules when we don't have a substantial body of economic experience that shows us that this what about, practice. What about the uh, reliance interest though? I mean, it hasn't a whole industry of discount stores developed in reliance on the Dr. Miles uh, rule, and it, it, don't we need to be concerned about the disruption to that uh, established practice? There's really no evidence that um, the marketplace as it exists today is a result of doc the Dr. Miles rule of 1911. But, uh, but isn't, the, isn't there evidence uh, that the basically the, the rise of the Walmarts and the Targets is correlated with the demise of, of fair trade? So that there, 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 there's that correlation. Actually, I, I looked into that, Justice Souter, and my, my limited historical research is that the market, those discounters were coming on strong before 1975, which is when the, um, the Consumer Price, whatever it was, Act was passed in response to that. There, there, the, the evidence basically shows that, and this Court has said, that it, it's interbrand competition that ultimately produces lower prices. Well, I don't know. We have, you talk about evidence, just for fun. I got out of the library a book by Professor B.S. Yaney called Resale Price Maintenance, where he has five economists. Now, maybe you're not going to count them as economists. Now, I didn't find in that book a single argument that isn't also in your briefs, nor did you find in your briefs a single argument that isn't in the book. There's one interesting thing about the book. It was written in 1966. So I guess my question is, what's changed? Now, I know two things have changed. One is there's evidence in Canada, Britain, and in the states that were under Miller tidings that when you got rid of resale price maintenance, prices went down. That's changed. And the second thing that's changed is there's far more concentration, I gather, today in the retail side of the market than there used to be, a factor which makes Resale price maintenance dangerous because it's more likely to take place at the request of the dealers. 
Now, I see those two changes. My question to you is, looking at Yamey's book, which is called Resale Price Maintenance, so you might have found it even on Google, and, and uh, 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 what's changed? What's new? Well, a, a number of things have changed. The, the number of respected individuals, notwithstanding that book, who have looked at it and have focused on the marketplace have said that because it allows uh, it increases the possibility of interbrand competition it can provide incentives for dealers to provide service uh, differences in the products Um, uh, other things that have happened since then are, are this court's decision in the Sylvania case which which involved an elaborate analysis of vertical restrictions and found that they are largely pro-competitive and undermined the the ruling, the reason for a per se rule. This is the Court's decision in State Oil versus Kahn and the other cases that this Court is very well aware of where per se rules have systematically been dismantled because they are artificial themselves in the marketplace. This 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 one — Mr. Olson — generally help retailers, or is this a question that can't be answered? Did you say inter- inter- interbrand competition? Do retailers like interbrand competition? Well, I, I don't know if it, <laughs> I, I don't know whether people like competition, but what the, the antitrust laws like competition, and this court likes competition, and this court has said well, that but interbrand- we're talking about inter- we're talking about retailers. It, it, it seems to me, at the outset of the argument, you you acknowledge, I, I think it is the general rule, that if the retailers themselves have this retail price maintenance, it's, it's, it's invalid. Well, if the uh, manufacturer does this just for the convenience of the retailers, and that's uh, many of the examples in your brief is for the convenience and, and, for, the, and, and for the benefit of the retailers, uh, then why should it be a per se rule? Why should we allow the manufacturer to do something that we wouldn't allow the retailers to do if it's for the retailers? Well, the, the manufacturer is very unlikely to do this for the convenience of the retailers to transfer, because the, it's in the interest of the manufacturer to have the retail price as low as possible so that the manufacturer will sell, sell as many of the manufacturer's products as if, possible. If, if indeed that's, that's what he's aiming at, uh, uh, Low price. Is it the object of the Sher- is the sole object of the Sherman Act to produce low prices? No, I thought it was consumer welfare. Yes, yes, it is. And I, th- I thought some consumers uh, would prefer more service at a higher price. Precisely. So the mere fact that, uh, that that it would increase prices doesn't prove anything. It doesn't prove that it's serving consumer welfare if, in fact, it's giving the consumer a choice of more service at a somewhat higher price, that, that would enhance consumer welfare, so long as there are competitive products at a lower price, wouldn't it? That's, that's absolutely correct. So I don't know why, why we should have to focus our entire attention on whether it's going to, going to produce uh, higher prices or not. The, what? The, the market out there has different goods at different prices, which have different qualities that, att- that attract different consumers. I, I agree completely. I would like to reserve the balance of my time for rebuttal, but let me say that that's what this Court has said over and over again. If you, the purpose of the antitrust laws is not price, but it's competition, because competition between competing manufacturers give the consumers more choice. Some people may want the cheapest product. Some people may want the product that's more available to them. They, they may wish the return policy or the warranty policy or the repair policy that the dealer provides. And in this 
marketplace particularly, that system of providing competition is consistent with the antitrust laws and has produced success in the marketplace. Mr. Olson, before you sit down, there's just one thing that wasn't covered in your argument or in the brief, but the complaint alleged in this case that Leggins allowed certain favored dealers to discount, not this uh, plaintiff, but others were allowed to discount. And if that was true, as a matter of fact, uh, then that would be a a plain violation of antitrust law. But the case was never litigated on that basis. It wasn't considered on that basis in the the Court of Appeals. It came up uh, sort of as a late thought in the opposition to the petition for certiorari. But that is not this case. The case was litigated on the per se rule of Dr. Miles. Thank you, Mr. Thank you, Mr. Olson. Uh, Mr. Hungar? Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The same considerations that led this Court in Sylvania and State Oil to reject outmoded per se rules compel that same result here. The Dr. Miles rule conflicts with this Court's modern antitrust jurisprudence in three fatal reasons. Maybe I'll put my question, which is really just one through this. I understand perfectly well that per se rules are a result of balancing different things. Of course, resale price maintenance does raise prices, and it's very often anti-competitive. Of course, sometimes there are good reasons for it that might help consumers. Now, in addition, you need clear rules. Now, those three sets of things require a balance. And we have a 100 years of history where this Court and Congress and others have balanced those three sets of considerations, and they've come out one way. Now the Department of Justice wants to rebalance them and come out the other way. There are good arguments on both sides. Why should we overrule a case that's 96 years old in the absence of any, any congressional indication that that's a good idea, when it's simply a question in a difficult area of people reaching a slightly different weight on some of these three sets of things? Several reasons, Your Honor. It's not, it's not a close question whether this Court, under its modern antitrust jurisprudence, as an initial matter, would impose a per se rule in this context. The, the, there is economic, there is consensus among the respected economists. Well, I would think it's quite a close question. I don't you think know, so, I, Your Honor. All right, given, so go ahead. Given that this Court's test the question this Court's, court's modern cases ask in distinguishing between the rule of reason and the per se rule is whether the challenged conduct is always or almost always anti-competitive. That's what the Court has said. Price-fixing uh, horizontal, I guess, or territorial divisions, we should overturn those, too. Certainly not, Your Honor, because that conduct is almost always anti-competitive in our experience and in the experience of the courts, but the same is not true in the resale price maintenance context. Dr. Miles has foreclosed the courts from conducting the kind of analysis that would actually look into this question, but the empirical data that are available suggest that the anti-competitive explanations for uh, resale price maintenance do not have very much explanatory power when you actually look at the cases that have been litigated. They involve 
uh, manufacturers with, without market power, unconcentrated markets, no evidence in the vast majority of those cases of any cartelization going on. So, so the anti-competitive explanations, while certainly valid in some cases, do not appear to explain most of the re resale price maintenance that has been litigated. It's true that resale price maintenance can, but does not always, result in price increases. But as Justice Scalia pointed out, price is not the only thing that consumers care about. And there is widespread consensus in the economic literature and in this Court's recent cases that price-based price vertical restraints, just like non-priced vertical restraints, while they generally reduce intra-brand competition, generally enhance inter-brand competition. In Monsanto and Business Electronics, this Court made clear that price vertical restraints, like minimum resale price maintenance, frequently, in fact, usually have the same or similar effects to the non-price vertical restraints to which this Court now applies rule of reason analysis. So, so the reason, in answer to your questions, wouldn't to your Wilson, argument also apply to a conspiracy among the New York dealers in this product? just to fix price there, because there's plenty of inter-brand competition. I think they don't think you can say it's absolutely clear that that would always be anti-competitive because they might also agree to provide additional services. No, no Your Honor, because horizontal — the important thing to keep in mind is that the incentives of the manufacturer — when the manufacturer well, I'm just talking about a case in which it's the dealers who want to agree to provide extra services at higher prices as, as, as their method of be better serving the, uh, the public, and they all agree that they have to be conscious about the competition from other brands. Well, why can we be absolutely certain that's always going to be harmful to the consumer? Your Honor, the reason why we know that is always or almost always harmful is that the incentives at a horizontal level of a retailer cartel, just like the incentives of the participants in a manufacturer it might cartel. Be precisely the same as the manufacturers. We think we'll make more, all make more money if we concentrate on service rather than price. No, Your Honor, because the manufacturer's incentive is not to increase the profits of the retailers. But the retailers, when they get together, obviously have a very different incentive, which is not what to benefit say the manufacturer. Right. What you say there is right. Uh, the, I feel I'm back in 1966. The argument against that is we don't know which way the push comes. The large retailers, Home Depot, whatever they are, huge retailers, they want, or maybe it isn't the discounters, it's some other ones. We don't know which way. You're throwing it into court. You're throwing it before 12 people who may or may not uh, work this thing out. So the argument against what you're saying is not logic. It's empirical and administrative. That's Your what Honor it was. That's what it is now, I guess. Your Honor, in state oil, the same argument was made. The argument was made that, well, we don't have compelling empirical evidence that, uh, that Albrecht results in, in harm to the economy. We don't have compelling empirical evidence that resale price maintenance, <coughs> maximum resale price maintenance is, is generally pro-competitive. And in the absence of such empirical evidence, there's no basis for overturning precedent. This we, Court we unanimously — We do have empirical evidence, though, don't we, that, uh, that the decision of this case is going to be very significant in the sort of the battle between Walmart and the Main Street stores? And why should this Court, in effect, take a shot in the dark at resolving that, as distinct from leaving it to Congress, which is in a position to know more about where the shot is going to land than, than we are? This Court uh, — I'm sorry, there's, there's no empirical evidence that I'm aware of about what impact eliminating Dr. Miles would have on the Walmarts of the world. That's, that's, my, that's my point. Uh, but it seems to me that there, there is a body of some empirical evidence 
that the success of the Walmarts and the Targets and the Home Depots was a success which was correlated uh, with the elimination uh, of, of price maintenance uh, by the states. I don't think so, Your Honor. In fact, as Mr. Olson pointed out, the, K- the Kmarts of the world began during the fair trade era. They, they began, uh, but, but they, have, uh, they, they have flourished in the post-fair uh, trade era. Yes, Your Honor, but I think considerations like the opening up of international trade and the development of markets like China to supply low-cost goods have a lot more to do with the success of the Walmarts of the world than, than a rule like, like uh, Dr. Miles. Remember, it's perfectly legal under current law for manufacturers to impose the same sort of constraints as long as they do it by fiat and unilateral enforcement rather than by agreement. So the suggestion that somehow this is going to revolutionize the economy if Dr. Miles is overruled is simply unsupportable. Well, then what's the great benefit in changing the rule if it's perfectly legal to achieve the same result already? As the Ping amicus brief, uh, the Ping Golf Club manufacturer amicus brief indicates, it's extremely expensive and inefficient to follow the Colgate regime. For those manufacturers for whom resale price maintenance would be an effective strategy, like Legion, it's much more efficient to do it in many circumstances by agreement rather than the disruption that is entailed when you terminate a dealer without further discussion for, for discounting one item in order to keep your But doesn't that answer your argument uh, that there isn't reason to believe that there is going to be disruption uh, if Dr. Miles goes? Because now it's going to be easy. Your Honor, in in 1945, during the the height of the fair trade era, the FTC did a study which concluded that only about 5 percent of the economy was affected by fair trade. And the fair trade regime, remember, is a different and more extreme regime. There it was per se legality, not rule of reason. So mm-hmm. it's just, there's just no basis for these assertions that somehow the economy is going to be massively changed. But it's, it's also perfectly clear and undisputed that there are circumstances in which it is more efficient for a manufacturer to adopt resale price maintenance. It will enhance its ability to compete, and it will provide consumers more of what they want. And that is a good thing, and the antitrust laws should not automatically foreclose that, merely because in a small percentage of cases it is conceivable that there can be anti-competitive effects. Isn't it fair to say uh, that there is reason to believe that there may be a massive re, uh, reorientation uh, in, in the retail economy if Dr. Miles goes? And that gets to my problem. Why should we be the people to make a guess as opposed to the Congress as the, as the institution to make the guess? I, I'm not aware of any reason to believe that, Your Honor, based on the historical record and based on the modern realities. The Walmarts of the world have, have succeeded because of their discounting strategy. That's not going to change. And manufacturers have an incentive to have their goods sold through those stores. So that's but, not going to change Congress, either in the vast majority of cases. So and with if, respect the, if the rule of reason is the one that uh, applies, I gathered, perhaps incorrectly, from Mr. Olson's remarks that this would be — this case would be thrown out on summary judgment. It would never get to trial. How do you think the rule of reason would operate if it were the rubric under which this case were to be decided? Your Honor, I think it would operate as it does usually, which is the plaintiff would be required to establish an anti-competitive effect resulting from the challenged conduct, and, it, and once that burden is overcome, the defendant would be required to come up with some legitimate business justification, some pro-competitive results that outweigh that, and only if they could do that would they succeed. In that, that's the formula, but I take it from what you said and Mr. Olson said that the um, plaintiff could never get across the first threshold. 
We don't agree with that, Your Honor. In, in cases where resale price maintenance is being used to facilitate cartelization, either at the manufacturer or the retail level, the plaintiff could prevail. Also, in, for example, in an oligopolistic but market. But in this case, this case has none of those features. Well, this right. The loses under the rule of reason, right? Well, we don't know that. It seems likely to assume that, though, and that's not a bad thing. Legion is obviously not dominant in the market. It's obviously not going to succeed unless what it is offering at a higher price is what consumers want, and that is a good thing under the antitrust laws. Thank you, Mr. Hunger. Thank you. Mr. Kirkendall. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. As recently as last month, this Court restated a guiding principle of antitrust jurisprudence. Discouraging price cuts and depriving consumers of low prices is bad antitrust policy. RPM prohibits is, price cuts. Is that right? I mean, you, you really think that, that antitrust policy means when any arrangement that produces a higher price is bad? Well, we aren't talking about any I mean, a lot of consumers want, uh, uh, you know, uh, extended warranties. Uh, they want showrooms where they can go and look at things, all of which cost more money, and, and where you cannot have uh, resale price maintenance, uh, the customers will you have the free rider problem. Well, customers shop at the, at the, at the place that, uh, that has the big showroom. It looks at all the product there and then goes buys, buys it from somebody else who has not incurred that expense. Now, I, I just don't think that all that customers want is cheap. I think they want other things besides cheap. I think they want service. I think they want selection. I think they want the ability to view goods and so forth. Why, why, why do you discount all of those values? I don't discount all those things. All those things are available under our current regime where we have a per se prohibition against resale price maintenance. Well, they, they aren't available. Uh, this, this company thought that it could provide higher service if it could assure its retailers uh, that they would not be undercut by people who are not providing that kind of service. And there's no question that even the plaintiff in this case was providing that service. He was providing it more efficiently, and he just wanted to pass those efficiencies. I don't, I don't know that there's no question about that. Uh, there is certainly no question that this company was successful in breaking into a difficult market with its, uh, w with its strategy of assuring its retailers a, a, a cushion so that they could provide the service. The record shows that with this specific company, most of the growth of its sales occurred before it established a resale price maintenance policy. So there are no demonstrated benefits from this company of imposing and enforcing that resale price maintenance policy. What is your main objection to, I mean, it's hard to oppose a rule of reason. Why, why can't uh, the rule of reason work to promote the objectives you've just articulated? Well, as a practical matter for someone in my position or, or plaintiff's position, it's impossible for a small dealer to muster the resources in order to put forth. For a small dealer, but as we've already heard, the, the dealers who engage in the discount policy are places like Target and Walmart. Those aren't small dealers. Those are behemoths in the retailing industry. I, I would suggest that those are not the people that really are being protected by this particular uh, per se prohibition. It is the small mom-and-pop operation like my client that wants to innovate and expand and pass on efficiencies and compete with the big discounters who might have power of their own 
in order to secure discounts. So, so you don't agree with the argument that we've heard this morning that uh, the transformation of American retailing since the 1970s, the rise of the large-scale uh, low-price retailers, has anything to do with the end of the fair trade laws and that uh, overruling Dr. Miles would reverse that? No, I absolutely agree with that. But but it's the resale price maintenance that enables these initiators, these small companies, these small operations to grow and innovate, achieve the efficiencies and pass those on, attract customers by reducing prices. And all that is stopped by imposition of resale price maintenance. Is there anything to suggest that the large-scale, low-price retailers who are supposedly uh, dependent on Dr. Miles are uh, support its retention? Have they filed amicus briefs here or otherwise suggested that uh, this is essential to their continuing operation? Uh, again, the large-scale uh, dominant players in the retail industry have their own market power. They don't need the protection of uh, the per se rule in order to enforce them. It's the next generation that this rule really aims to protect. Well, I, I, I don't <coughs> understand that. I mean, if, if it was really the case that they were going to be losing uh, losing profits, uh, I, I think they, they would have been here. I mean, we talk about the Walmarts and the Targets. They're, they're, they're not here in amicus briefs because they're, what, what they're selling is cheap. They are selling price, and people who want low price and for whom that's a value above all other things, are going to continue to go to those stores. So they're, they're you know, they're, they're not going to be harmed by the fact that some manufacturers want to provide not just not just a low price. Of course, they'll try to keep the price as low as possible, but but service. Uh, I, I just don't see what what harm can possibly come so long as there's no market dominance from allowing some people to make their money on service and uh, rather than cheap price. Well, again, I would suggest that under this current system the way it is, we have both the full-service providers of complete service that offer goods at a certain price, and we have discounters selling those same goods. There is currently a mix of, of service and price that better serves the economy than just having one cookie-cutter uh, one-size-fits-all approach that you would have with resale price maintenance. Well, I thought the per se rule is the cookie-cutter approach. Well, in terms of prohibiting price, uh, or in terms of, yeah, prohibiting price fixing, that's true. But it permits stores to have full price and full service and charge high prices for that service, and it permits discounters to reduce price reduce service and cater to those customers who want the goods with lower service. The Internet. I mean, is it, it, uh, is it, is it, is it the I mean, you would have said 40 years ago, or I think we are in this argument, you would have said that uh, 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 it's the large discounters, the growing discounters, the Walgreens of the world who want to get rid of resale price maintenance. It's there to help the mom and pops. Okay. They're in now. They're big. And they may — uh, want to maintain resale prices because they may want uh, uh, to extract the extra profit while the Internet little company comes in and says, I can get it to you cheaper. Now, uh, I can imagine circumstances like you say. I can imagine they're not like you say. I don't know. And so what should I do if I really don't know? 
Well, there is no doubt that resale price maintenance raises prices to consumers. The only economic doubt is whether there are any redeeming effects of those prices, and that's where the economic dispute in this is. Well, I thought the uh, ping brief that was referenced <coughs> earlier uh, made a point that it may the prices may be resale price. The current Dr. Miles rule may result in increased prices because of the inefficiencies for those retailers or for those manufacturers who want to establish a regime where something other than price is important, and they have to do that unilaterally, which increases inefficiencies. Well, Your Honor, I would suggest that. First of all, eliminating the per se rule would not decrease the inefficiencies of the Colgate Doctrine uh, if they want to impose resale price maintenance in, in order to avoid even a rule of reason approach. They would it, have to go through Isn't that this. a tremendous anomaly that the employer, that, that the, the manufacturer cannot do this by agreement, but he can do it just as a matter, just unilaterally? and terminate any dealer that won't go along, those two sit uncomfortably with each other. I mean, Colgate seems to say you can achieve the same end, but we're not going to let you do it by agreement. You have to do it on your own, and then you have to do the, the draconian thing of terminating the dealer. I, I believe that anomaly really lies at the heart of the Sherman Antitrust Act, which is aimed at contracts, combinations, and conspiracies. Unilateral conduct isn't, a, isn't reached by that. It, it's the price of being in a fair country. People can deal in ways that they want to with this particular issue. But again, eliminating uh, the per se rule will not help paying out if they want to maintain uh, their resale price maintenance uh, as legal, as unilateral, they'll still have to go through these same machinations. Why, why is that? Why can't eliminating the rule, I thought the whole point was, they would just put in their contracts, you have to sell it at this price, and they could enforce the contracts, <laughs> rather than having to have these machinations of making sure they don't do anything that looks like an agreement with the retailer. Well, uh, again, then they would be subject to a rule of reason analysis and the uncertainties occasioned with that as to whether this contract is, is lawful. If they want to avoid that, then, of course, they would have to stick with the Colgate Doctrine. Your Honor, in this particular case, we have clear evidence that RPM was used to facilitate a horizontal retailer cartel. We have evidence, and it's shown in the, the briefs, that uh, Legion would gather its dealers in a dealer meeting, discuss the policy, agree to changes, and reach a consensus, and then enforce that policy against everyone. One of the evils of resale price maintenance is specifically this. It does facilitate the formation of cartels. Yeah, but the conspiracy that it facilitated is just with intra-brand competition. There wasn't any conspiracy that affected inter-brand competition. Retailer so I'm not sure that economically it makes any difference whether the dealers are the ones who decided to do it or the manufacturer was or they all did it at the same time. Uh, horizontal conspiracies, even among a single brand, has always been a per se violation of the 
antitrust law. You can look back at the C. No, but if we if we would say the rule or reason should apply to all cases that just affect intra-brand competition, I'm not sure why we should keep this uh, outmoded rule about uh, horizontal conspiracies that only affect uh, intra-brand competition. There, you're striking at really the heart of uh, the um, uh, the heart of the Sherman Act at all, holding that horizontal conspiracies, which nobody believes uh, promote competition, could be justified under this same thing. But it's a totally — I cannot imagine why a horizontal conspiracy among dealers could ever produce consumer welfare. It will be a horizontal conspiracy to get more money out of the consumer. But where it's the manufacturer who wants to impose resale price maintenance, he's not, his interest isn't to give the retailer as much more money than the retailer is now making. He's going to try to keep their margin just as low as it ever was so that he can sell as many of his products as possible, consistent with his desire to sell his product by attaching to it more service, better warranty, more showrooms, whatever. Uh, I mean, a horizontal conspiracy, the incentives are entirely different. When when you're dealing with a manufacturer, it seems to me his incentive is still to keep the price as low as possible, consistent with the additional additional good that he wants to give consumers to attract those consumers to his product. In this particular case, there is a complete alignment of incentives because the manufacturer was also a retailer competing in this market. He has the incentive to increase retailer Well, if, if that's the case and if that makes a difference, the, uh, the rule of reason would, would allow you to make that argument. But, you, but you, you want to say it's bad across the board for everybody. If, indeed, there's something peculiar about this case, the rule of reason would allow you to argue that. Well, Your Honor, we would suggest that the horizontal conspiracy between Legion as a retailer and the other retailers offering its products it is more than just a rule of reason approach. That would be per se illegal under this Court's precedence. Retail price maintenance also has the problem, we discussed earlier, of perpetuating incumbent forms of distribution at the expense of the innovative and more efficient distribution means. Retailers, retail competition matters. Retailers should be entitled to innovate, pass efficiencies along to customers in the form of lower prices, attract new customers, and grow in that manner. Mr. Quackendale, the on the question that you alleged in, in the complaint that there was some discounting allowed by, how do you pronounce it, Legan? Legion. Legion. Some, and, and Mr. Olson said that but that wasn't pursued at trial. Is that correct? That particular aspect was referred to. It wasn't pursued as a, a separate part of this. Prior to trial, the judge did rule that the Dr. Miles line of cases applied and the conduct would be judged under per se rule. So certain aspects with respect to the horizontal conspiracy and, and the differences in discounts uh, no, didn't, didn't matter, but that suppose you were to lose, you would still have that claim, I take it. Well, yes, we would suggest that the record is sufficient that on remand the instruction given the jury as to the standard by which their conduct could be judged uh, could be sustained as a, a per se 
violation under the rules related to horizontal conspiracies as well. And again, I would suggest that perhaps if the Court doesn't reach that, it should remand to the Fifth Circuit for them to consider whether that is a possibility. Resale price maintenance can distort consumer choice. The retailers, if a person comes into the store, the retailers can exercise pressure to influence the selection of higher margin products over ones that may better fit the consumer needs. That is an evil of resale price maintenance, whether or not it does promote efficiencies. And if resale price maintenance does act as it is theorized to increase retailer services, some consumers will be worse off. They'll be paying for services they don't want. There are alternatives to RPM. I don't suppose there's any, I don't suppose there's any way to protect against the foolish consumer, is there? I mean, if indeed, if indeed a, a store presses on a consumer a product that's more expensive than what he needs or than what he wants, is this a real argument against this? That there's some stupid consumers who, who can be conned? I mean, whatever rule we adopt, that's, that's going to be the, the situation. Well, it, it, what you're doing is you're building in this high margin that gives the retailer an incentive to do that. If uh, there is no resale price maintenance, if that margin isn't guaranteed, the incentive disappears. What is clear is that resale price maintenance is a blunt instrument to achieve any economies. You're assuming that the, that the retailer has a higher margin on the resale price uh, a good. Why, why do you assume that? That's the only incentive, the only reason we're imposing resale price. He's only going to be given the thing if he, if he does the kind of additional service that the manufacturer wants. That's the whole purpose of it. And the manufacturer is going to try to keep his margin just as low as he can, consistent with, uh, you know, consistent with uh, uh, selling as many products as he, as he can. Well, there are more efficient ways than RPM to achieve any benefits of efficiency such as contracts with the retailers to provide those additional demand-creating services. He could pay the retailers to provide those services. He could provide those services directly, and I would, I would say — Why would you argue that those are more efficient than resale price maintenance? Resale price maintenance amounts to nothing more than throwing money at the problem. You're guaranteeing a margin, and you're hoping that it's going to be used somehow for the consumer's benefit. And you've got no guarantee that any dealer is going to use the margin that they're guaranteed in any way to service the consumers. And I would suggest that in geographically isolated You you can add the contractual provisions you were talking about to a contract that has a minimum resale price. The minimum resale price is to take away the incentive on the retailer not to carry through on the non-price aspects. If you have a contract requiring those services, you don't need the minimum resale price. That, that's just completely unnecessary, and that would prohibit an efficient dealer from passing on those efficiencies to its consumer. Does that presume a contract in which the retailer has a separate charge for the service? It could be. It may not. Because if not, I don't see how that would work under your, under your rule. Well, uh, under uh, the idea is the manufacturer chooses to deal with only those dealers that offer this particular service. They sign a contract to provide that service, and if they don't want to provide that service, if they don't sign the contract, they don't get the goods. It's as simple as that. 
if the question is providing a larger margin to the dealer, the most efficient way is for the manufacturer simply to lower their wholesale price. The margin the dealer receives is higher. Uh, again, if there are other efficiencies, they might be achieved by exclusive territories as permitted by Sylvania or by the Colgate Doctrine. I would suggest that the experience of the 30 years following the elimination of the fair trade laws have shown the wisdom of the Dr. Miles decision, which places faith in the free market system. This court should continue to honor its precedents and respect the will of Congress by adhering to the Dr. Miles rule. Your, your reference to the will of Congress, they haven't enacted legislation that uh, supports the result you seek. Your Honor, as this Court observed in Sylvania, Congress, by uh, repealing the Miller Tidings McGuire Act, did indicate its support for the per se rule. I believe the Court should, have, should adhere to that holding as well. Thank, Thank you, Counsel. Ms. Underwood? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. When a manufacturer agrees with its retailers to fix a minimum resale price, the whole point of the agreement is to prevent price competition among retailers, to prevent discounting. For almost 100 years, the Court has interpreted Section 1 of the Sherman Act to prohibit such price-fixing agreements. Any change in that fundamental understanding of the statute should be made by Congress and not by this Court. The per se rule against resale price maintenance is different in at least three ways from other antitrust rules that this Court has overturned. First, unlike the other rules, it alone has been settled law for a century, reaffirmed over and over again by this Court. Well, it's also been settled law for 90 years under the Colgate Doctrine that manufacturers can achieve the same results, uh, albeit more inefficiently. Doesn't it make sense to allow them to adopt the most efficient means to an end that is already completely legal? No, that, uh, that, that tension that you, that, that uh, supposed anomaly that you describe is simply a result of the fact that the antitrust rule law does not prohibit all anti-competitive behavior. It prohibits agreements that are anti that, that restrain competition. And so it will often be the case that it is possible for somebody unilaterally to do something that has the same effect as an agreement or approximately the same effect. And the antitrust law simply draws that line because of a different value, a value in preserving the uh, independent action of individuals. It is, however — I'm not sure it's often the case. Give me, give me some other examples where, where you can achieve the same industry-wide effect unilaterally, I think. Well, uh, as you have observed, virtually any vertical uh, restriction could be accomplished by having the manufacturer um, integrate the retailing function and, and, and become one entity instead of two entities. Then the possibility of conspiracy or agreement is eliminated, and the manufacturer, if he simply integrates the whole function, is, uh, can, can fix prices fix his, what are, in effect, his own prices and be outside the reach of the, of the antitrust laws. There are other reasons why a manufacturer might not find it convenient to do that integration, but it is certainly possible by ceasing to be multiple entities and to become one entity 
to avoid the, the prohibitions of the antitrust law. It is also so, — so this is old and well settled, unlike uh, the Schwinn rule against territorial restraints, which was overturned only 10 years after it was established, or the Albrecht rule against maximum resale price maintenance, which was overturned 29 years after it was established. This is — this has a much more uh, settled pedigree in the law, and expectations have grown up around it. Second, it was endorsed and relied on by Congress, not enacted by Congress, but but endorsed and relied on by Congress when Congress repealed the fair trade laws in 1975 by amending the very statute this Court is now asked to interpret. So were, 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 were they relying on Dr. Miles or were they relying on us? They were that's, no, that's, they that's were the question. They left the situation where it was, which is that the antitrust law is as determined by this Court, and we had — we had shown our willingness to update the antitrust law when, when sound uh, economic doctrine uh, suggests it's necessary. No, the legislative history described in some detail in the Antitrust Institute's brief shows that actually they were uh, returning the law to the per se rule against resale price maintenance that they thought resale price maintenance was bad and should be prohibited. This is — it is but, also but true that — But, of course, that they can always pass a law saying that if their intent is so clear. And that, they didn't do that here. That's true. They did not do that here, and I'm not suggesting that they did. Only that uniquely among the rules that this Court has established in the antitrust area, this rule has received the repeated attention of Congress. And so the Court's deference to Congress and reluctance to overturn the rules should be at its peak as compared with those other rules. And third, price is different. Uh, this Court has said that price competition is the central nervous system of the economy. Other restraints, to be sure, might indirectly affect price, but not with the same absolute force. Territorial restraints don't absolutely prevent price competition because customers can travel or order by phone, mail, or Internet. And indeed, under territorial restraints, there are often multiple retailers in a particular territory who can compete. Maximum price maintenance doesn't prevent price competition at all, unless, as the Court noted in Kahn, it's really minimum resale price maintenance in disguise, in which case the Court in Kahn said it's illegal. Um, manufacturers can, of course, pay retailers for the services that enhance the product that are being advanced as the the pro-competition benefit of resale price maintenance. But the question for this Court is whether the manufacturer should be allowed to use a price-fixing agreement to make that payment, to buy those services. And that's not a question of fact for a jury to decide in a rule of reason trial. That's a question of statutory interpretation for this Court. It's a question, really, of what kind of currency a manufacturer can use to buy those retailer services. It's also true that the claim that price-fixing works to induce those services is both debatable and untested. The retailers have no obligation to provide services under the, stand, under the retail price maintenance agreement at issue in this case and in other cases. But they could. I mean, you could easily write the agreement saying you have to charge this much, and because you have to charge this much, you also have to provide this, 
the training, the service, whatever the non-price uh, inducements are. You could. You could also require those things without resale price maintenance, and then the retailer would be free to decide to raise the price to pay for that or to provide it so efficiently but that then it the retailer, engage. But then the retailer might have a real incentive not to do a good job on the service because they really want to market it for price, not for service. Well, that really depends, doesn't it, uh, it on what the consumers in the market want. And if, what the, if it's correct, if the manufacturer, if the claim on behalf of the manufacturer here is correct that what the customers want is, is service, the retailers are uh, in at least as good a position to identify that fact. Um, as not. I think the point Well, but there you have the free rider problem, which is you go to the fancy showroom, you figure out what you want, and then you buy it at the discount store. Yeah, that's at its peak, perhaps, when you're talking about electronics, um, when what — when the shopping experience alone is what is thought to be the benefit, which is often the case, you can't free ride on that. You either shop in the place where you like to shop, um, or you shop somewhere, or you, or you have a different shopping experience in, in, in Target. But some manufacturers want their product associated with, with excellent service, high warranty, and all of that. And there's no way to get that uniformly for that product with, with, without this kind of an Yes, there is. You, the, the, the manufacturer can contract for it. The manufacturer can decline to deal with people who don't provide it, the very same very point that was being made earlier. I think that um, the point here is that permitting resale price maintenance would be such a drastic change in the longstanding settled interpretation of the Sherman Act that it doesn't really qualify as the kind of common law evolution that this Court has said is appropriate ordinarily in making antitrust rules under the Sherman Act. If that change is to be made at all, it should be made by Congress and not by this Court. Am I, am, am I correct on the Congressional point that there was a period when Congress said pro, would have prohibited the Solicitor General from making the argument he made today? Yes, there was such a period. And uh, this Court noted that fact in um, — So there was a legislative expression of a position on this particular issue? There was a legislative expression of position on this particular and issue. And that, is no, that no longer no. is applicable? Um, that is — the, the Solicitor General is no longer barred from making that argument, as is evident uh, uh, today. I guess what Congress is, changed its mind then. No, I think Congress found it unnecessary or perhaps questioned the wisdom or constitutionality of barring the Solicitor General from making particular arguments. I find it hard to believe that. (laughs) (laughs) But Congress has consistently — well, and and the the repeal — the reason the repeal of the Miller-Tidings Act seems particularly uh, relevant is that it is indeed — it was an amendment to this statute that this — that this Court is being asked to interpret, so it sheds some light on the meaning of this statute as as it stands. As Mr. Olson pointed out, under the fair trade laws, this was per se legal. So that's quite a different thing. Yes, but when Congress repealed that, there were considerable — there was considerable expression of legislative history for those who find legislative history helpful that that, uh, declared opposition to resale price maintenance, not simply that it was sometimes helpful and sometimes hurtful. So to the extent Congress — Congress's uh, intent can be gleaned from that legislative history, it was an intent to return to the regime of per se illegality. And maybe on the year-by-year don't spend any money on maybe — Congress decided that wasn't an appropriate technique, but Congress has used that after, hasn't it, in other cases, said 
Yes, but I, I, I would hands. question the wisdom of that technique as a method of expressing Congress's view. The fact that Congress went so far as to use it once uh, suggests a very strong view indeed. Thank you, Ms. Underwood. Uh, Mr. Olson, you have three minutes remaining. The respondent and uh, its amici seem to recognize that what this Court said in State Oil versus Kahn, that a vertical restraint imposed by a single manufacturer or wholesaler may stimulate interbrand competition, even as it reduces intrabrand competition. And by the way, it enhances intrabrand competition on matters of service and availability and other things in addition to price. The respondent and their amici seem to have acknowledged these pro-competitive factors, but say you should do it by a contract with 5,000 different retailers, which you then have to go out and enforce, or you have to do it under a Colgate system, which the Ping brief said, demonstrates it's an invita- it's a blunt instrument. It requires terminating retailers with which you had a relationship for years. It prohibits even talking to the re- loyal retailers to fix small problems. You're just giving them an additional ground for termination. Pardon me? You're just giving, you're just suggesting we should give them an additional ground. No, what, what I'm, what we're suggesting is that the agreement is something that can be, the details can be worked out. People, the manufacturer can, and, and the Ping brief explains this. The manufacturer can go to the retailer and say, look, you maybe didn't get it right. Your salesperson said the wrong thing. Let's fix it because we want to be dealing together. The antitrust laws, what, in other words, what the respondent and its amici want, or they suggest forward integration. So you just, all your retailers. The benefits of these type of arrangements provide the consumers with choices. It stimulates interbrand competition. It promotes intrabrand competition on things other than price. It provides consumers with more choices. It ultimately gives more freedom to the manufacturer to stimulate the sale of its products to enter the marketplace. This is, these are things that the Court has said uh, and provides a more varied marketplace. The Court has repeatedly said that the presumptive rule is a rule of reason. Per se rules should be tossed out or not adopted unless they're they're dealing with a practice which is invariably anti-competitive. This practice, as acknowledged, is pro-competitive. It provides many opportunities, and it is irrational for vertical restrictions to exist in this world, in the non-price area or the maximum price area, as subject to the rule of reason and the minimum retail price maintenance um, under a rigid per se rule that cannot be changed. And as this Court has repeatedly held, Congress intended by the use of restraint of trade and, and the unreasonable restraint of trade for this Court to continue to breathe life into the restrictions of the antitrust laws in the benefit of the consumer and in the benefit of competition, eliminating rigid per se rules which make it unlawful for a manufacturer to do something that's rational in the marketplace, to give consumer choices or to do it in some indirect way that is a lawyer's dream and an entrepreneur's nightmare makes no sense at all. For all those reasons, the rule of reason in this area, as in the other areas, should replace the per se rule, which is rigid and anti-competitive at the end of the day. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Olson. The case is submitted.